Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we bring you a long-promised introduction to the archaeology of ancient Egypt. We are just barely going to scratch the surface with the tips of our trowels, because uh, you you may know this already, but there is a lot, a whole lot of stuff in yeah. Egypt. Yeah. So where do we even start? <laughs> we already did start. Don't worry. I mean, great, great. Hello. Uh, The last time we really talked about ancient Egyptian material was way back in episode four, Genius with a Neckbeard. (laughs) (laughs) Still proud of that title. When we talked about Jean-Francois Champollion and his decipherment of the Rosetta Stone. And actually, we're going to start back there because the events that led to the finding of the Rosetta Stone are arguably where the archaeological interest in the ancient Egyptian world began. Let's hop in that time machine and join napoleon bonaparte who landed in alexandria on july 1st 1798 he took the metro (laughs) napoleon bonaparte landed in alexandria on july 1st 1798 intending to establish a colony disrupt british trade with india free the egyptians from their mamluk oppressors and impose liberty and equality on them hooray but Things did not go according to plan, and Napoleon secretly scuttled back to France about a year after he arrived, stranding a chunk of his army back in Egypt. Classy guy. Along with those stranded soldiers were a team of 150 hand-picked scientists, artists, and engineers known as the savants. These nerds had been assigned to learn everything they could about Egypt and its people, both modern and ancient. Despite being literally left in the dust, the savants did very well, and their efforts culminated in the encyclopedic Description de l'Egypte, published in complete form in 1829, some 30 years after the Egyptian campaign began, and almost a decade after Napoleon shuffled off his mortal coil. The Description consisted of 23 ginormous volumes, like outsized, like it wasn't book-sized, it was sort of countertop sized. So 23 giant volumes and 13 of those volumes were entirely devoted to engravings, as in illustrations. It laid the foundation of Egyptology, sparked the Egyptian revival in design and the long-lasting fad of Egyptomania, and helped start the colonialist ball of Orientalism rolling. And the vibrations of that role are still felt today. In his groundbreaking 1978 book, Orientalism, the cultural critic Edward Said referred to the description as, quote, that great collective appropriation of one culture by another, end quote. So enter Egyptomania. Europeans who got a chance to look at the description, as well as all of the Egyptian stuff that Napoleon straight up stole, were captivated by Egyptian art. Plus, once hieroglyphs were translatable, thanks to Champollion, texts could be read, and scholars were putting out all sorts of information about Egyptian history and rulers and elites, and it was a whole new exotic world. 
Romantic poets Percy Bysshe Shelley and Horace Smith released competing versions of Ozymandias uh, in 1818. And Ozymandias is a Greek name for Ramses II. And those poems brooded on the lost majesty of the pharaohs. And letters filled the newspapers arguing that Britain had a duty to gobble up as many relics, remains, mummies, and masonry as was humanly possible. German Egyptologist Georg Ebers, of Ebers papyrus fame, frothed imperiously along the same lines in his two-volume Egypt, Descriptive, Historical, and Picturesque, which was published in 1878. I know, isn't that a great dumb title? That's a great title. Yeah. Okay. Sure. (laughs) While cheerier folks toyed with ancient Egyptian motifs in soft furnishings, architectural follies, and advertising, um, I think pharaoh cigars were a thing, just like... Yeah. Smoke like a pharaoh, I guess. Uh, Many fetishized the idea of lavish tombs and descent into the afterlife. For the Victorians, with their equally morbid and complex mourning rituals, the example of these ancient people was one to follow. And perhaps they even saw something of themselves in this ancient empire, its ambition, wealth, and grandeur, and saw its collapse as a potent reminder that even the greatness of Britain would one day fall to dust. I mean, maybe. Maybe they were just like, ooh, new stuff. I'm goth now. (laughs) Throughout the 19th century, Egyptian influences could be found in women's mourning jewelry, which often featured obelisks or scarabs. Uh, Even, um, this is fun, real scarabs with dried out beetles on earrings. Have Have I told you about the time that I got a real scarab in my ear? I'm sorry, I blacked out for a second. (laughs) I think you have, and I re I. Do you want go ahead? Oh, I, I just. I mean, is that the story? Th- I'm, that is a lot of the story, but they've got those sharp little legs. Oh, I know, and they they'll 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 rip you up. I got a scar in my ear. Well, buddy, it's a scarab. <laughs> well, the story was worth it for that. <laughs> ah, I forgive you my discomfort. <laughs> So, uh, scarab earrings, uh, and there were also Egyptian sort of touches on tombs, mausolea, cemetery gates, and even entire graveyards, which had an Egyptian style of architecture or decorative features like obelisks. And in this period, just everyone had to have an obelisk. For example, the Washington Monument was built in 1848. Its shape is not a coincidence. Huh. Well... So probably the most famous archaeological site in Egypt, or at least one of the most immediately noticeable from ground level, is the tomb complex at Giza, which we talked about a bit uh, recently on our Mythnomers episode. So aside from some early clearance work in the first half of the 1800s by the Frenchman Auguste Mariette, director of the First National Service to monitor and safeguard Egyptian antiquities... Yep. Cool. Cool. (laughs) Yeah. That's your job, French guys, to monitor and safeguard Egyptian. uh, These are ours. Uh, You are taking. We are doing Um, clearance work. Clear away all this dust. So much dust. The earliest modern scientific investigation at Giza took place in 1842 to 1843 CE. At this time, a Prussian expedition led by Carl Richard Lepsius, uh, cleared and numbered several private tombs, entered the Great Pyramid, and drew maps and plans of the site. In 1880, the British archaeologist W.M.F. Petrie, Wumpf. There it is. 
Petrie set out for Giza, where he was able to record the most accurate measurements of the Great Pyramid and other monuments produced up to that time. What? I, how, how do you? What a, it, they're right there. A, how do you inaccurately measure them? It's they're a right weird, there. It's a, it's a weird brag. My measurements are the least bad. <laughs> he also investigated a few isolated private tombs in the Western Cemetery. In the early 1900s, the Giza Plateau was divided into three sections, with excavation rights granted to archaeologists from three nations. None of uh, them the, Egypt. Yeah, the American George Reisner of Harvard University and the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Uh, Germans. Germans. <laughs> <laughs> I am from Germany. <laughs> Germans uh, Georg Steindorf and Hermann Juncker of the Universities of Leipzig and Vienna, respectively. Don't be and- so Steindorfish. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> and. Um, Italian Ernesto Scaparelli, director of the Egyptian Museum of Turin. These mm. excavations, along with work by Salim Hassan and other Egyptian archaeologists, Yay! beginning in the 1920s, produced the majority of data about Giza available today. Speaking of data available today, you can check out Harvard's site, Digital Giza, where along with plenty of information about the whole complex, you can zoom around the plateau and the pyramids and other various buildings uh, thanks to some nifty 3D models. Although I will say, um, I'm not sure if it was a Wi-Fi issue or a my computer issue, but I think there is a lot of data involved because I tried, I started loading one of the models and my computer just went, uh... (laughs) Your computer started like smoking. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Smoke, smoking like an Egyptian pharaoh cigar. Ah, yeah. Bringing it back. Mm-hmm. Call back yep. Yep. to four minutes ago. Nice. As we mentioned in the Mathnomers episode, Giza is home to the Great Pyramid. The it's only great. one. It's great. And it's the only one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that's still standing. The Great Pyramid was the largest ever constructed in Egypt, originally reaching a height of 481 feet. It was built by King Khufu. Well, he, he didn't build it. Other people nope. built it. Yep. But it was his around yeah. 2550 BCE. Two of Khufu's su- successors also built major monuments at Giza. Khafre, whose burial complex includes the second largest pyramid plus the Sphinx. Mm-hmm. It's a twofer. And Menkaure, whose pyramid is the smallest of the three. Yep. No Sphinx. Very tasteful. Yes. As these royal complexes were being constructed, and even for centuries after Egyptian kings began to build their monuments elsewhere, hundreds of tombs were systematically added to cemeteries surrounding the pyramids to serve as the eternal resting places for the royal family and the bureaucratic elite. Among these individuals were Khufu's mother, Queen Hetaferes I, whose burial was hidden nearly 90 feet underground, the vizier, or prime minister, Hemunu. Yep. Or something else, as far as we know. <laughs> or you know, because as, it as it's as it's rendered in Egyptian. Yeah, <laughs> No, don't. <laughs> um, he was the architect of the Great Pyramid, and Queen Marisanh the Third, owner of a unique, beautifully decorated tomb east of her grandfather Khufu's pyramid, the ancient Egyptian Old Kingdom which was about 2650 to 2150 BCE. We'll get to the timelines in, yeah. a, in a bit. Chronic is coming early this year. Mm-hmm. 
was a period of strong central government. So it makes perfect sense that its rulers were able to organize the vast quantity of labor required for such enormous building projects. It also tracks that many officials chose to be buried at a site so near the capital, the focus of power. I feel like we should mention here that there is really no evidence that uh, slaves built the pyramids. It seems more like Egyptians built the pyramids, and we'll get to that. Well, And like employed Egyptians. Yeah. Egyptians who are compensated. Yeah. And Um, and so let's talk about that. Just south of the complex at Giza is a site that might not be as imposing as the pyramids themselves, but is just as interesting to archaeologists interested in more than the lives of the elite members of a society. This is the workers' village at Giza, a town about 1,300 feet or 400 meters south of the Sphinx that housed workers building the pyramid of Pharaoh Menkaure. The site is also known by its Arabic name, Hait el-Gurab, and is sometimes called the Lost City of the Pyramid Builders. It's, it's not lost, though. It's, it's right literally there. right there. You can see it. The first excavations at the workers' village were in 1988 and 89, and they revealed structures built from a mix of stone and mud brick. Today, quite a bit of the village has been excavated and mapped, giving us a fragmented but fascinating look at the lives of the pyramid builders. So this is from a site report on that workers' village published in 2005. Quote, Structures for food production and storage surround the gallery complex on the east, west, and south. These include the replication of modular open-air bakeries with a production capacity far beyond the needs of an individual household. A lot of bread. At the southeastern corner of the settlement, a large enclosure, which we called for convenience the Royal Administration Building, RAB, features a sunken court of large round silos, two and a half meters in diameter, probably for grain storage. Evidence of olive, foreign pottery, and charcoal of coniferous woods testify that the village's occupants handled and distributed Levantine products obtained in the well-documented Old Kingdom trade with the Eastern Mediterranean. Abundant and ubiquitous granite fragments scattered across the site, in addition to the bulk granite used in the Giza pyramid complexes, shows that the occupants of the workers' village trafficked in trade with Aswan, which was itself an entrepot for trade with lands farther south. So the granite was not um, local. There's builder's graffiti. This is my favorite part. There's builder's graffiti in various places in the village, from incised notes about various teams of workmen who marked their handiwork. There was one, um, there's one team that sort of signed things, the drunkards of Mankaure, which is fun. They (laughs) seem like fun guys. Uh, To more casual scrawled messages and writing that might be connected to religious offerings. And it seems that the story of the pyramids built by slaves is not exactly the case. In fact, the evidence from graffiti and other writings suggests that regions or townships under Egypt's control periodically sent work teams for large state projects, which is what we see for Mezzo and South American monumental building projects as well. These are people who are sent from sort of the smaller polities under the larger umbrella of Egypt, and the workers were sort of really well compensated. Um not necessarily in money, but they were given places to stay and they were fed really well. They got a lot um, of exposure they got to the sun. Yes. They were able to like network and stuff. Oh yeah. It was really, really good for uh, their, their LinkedIn profiles. Um, LinkedIn. I hate you. Um, <laughs> uh, um, so do people think is the common belief um, that slaves built the pyramids because of the story of Exodus in the Bible? I think so. Is that I'm, it? I'm, I think so. I 
don't have, I mean, and I'm coming from a position of that's what I thought for a really long time because I was raised Jewish. And so every Passover, that's the story you hear. And I had no reason to be like, now, wait a minute. But yeah, it seems it's, like these like, were the, sort of is the narrative that like, I mean, I'm was, not here to to bash. What, no, but what, no, but was it like the pyramids? It well, was just it was just slavery, right? Well, yeah, it's I think two things are happening. I think there were probably slaves in Egypt who were Jewish. Right. And and there were big building projects that probably those slaves worked on. I don't think they were the pyramids. Right. Well, I'm just, like what my question is like so but I think at, what people at Passover, did like it's a sort of No, like, no, no, no. No, at Passover it's just like we were slaves in Egypt. But, it was okay, terrible. That's what I that's what I thought. And then okay. And then like yeah. sort of outside but of I, Passover you're like maybe it was that. It's big. Right. So Took a lot I of think, labor. Okay. I think what people have done is conflate the idea right. of slaves in Egypt and those are the biggest building projects you can see in Egypt, yeah. really. Or it's like those are the ones people know about. And so that gets smushed together into slaves yeah. built the pyramids. We That's really not the case. Yeah. People weren't thinking like agriculture. But that's like really not domestic. To, like other things that slave labor would could be used for. Right. Okay. But I mean, first of all, that's not to say that there were never slaves in Egypt. There absolutely were. But also this idea of uh, huge groups of men, probably also some women, who knows, but huge groups of people coming to work on these pyramids had very much to do with agriculture, actually, since you say that, because mm -hmm. the agricultural system is cyclical. So mm -hmm. once you harvest everything, there's not a lot going on for a bit of the year. And so you have some free time and yeah, why not? It's, it's seasonal labor. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I'm not going <laughs> to... I'm gonna push this much further because yeah. oh, really? uh, I don't I don't know how much that, that you know about this. Like I yeah. also want to caution people against like just because they weren't slaves doesn't mean they like had like union representation. Oh yeah, no, uh, like, I don't know how much like, agency these people had at all. Yeah, so like it's sort of I just it's, I just it's thorny. I just want to I just want to plant that seed of like yeah no that's a good point like not not slavery. Does not equal it does not equal great workers' rights. Yes, yeah. So like they could have been housed and fed, and you know like possibly like paid in like rations, or they could have been paid in like some form of currency. But also that doesn't necessarily mean that they were like this was a career. <laughs> this was something that they chose for themselves. Like it's just like things like like agency are like more really difficult hard to tease to, out to access like in mm -hmm. the archaeological record. Right. Um, and so I just wanted to remind folks of that uh, of because course. that's something that comes up in uh, so sort of like what I have more experience with and sort of looking at like labor in Mesopotamia. Mm -hmm. so you have groups of people that perform labor that like aren't doing the, too hot themselves. Yeah, so the I mean the word that kind of fits there is conscripted labor. Yeah. So there's there's a gradient between slave labor, conscripted labor, free labor, and then like craft. Yeah, well said. Well, th oh, thank you. I got like one a day. <laughs> so we don't exactly know what the what quality of life or sort of quality of of work life, what the work life balance was <laughs> for workers in the village yeah. of Giza. Whatever eight hours status, for fufu, eight hours for rest. 
Eight hours for what I will. Keep your manifestos out of this podcast. <laughs> Whatever the status of the workers at Giza, at least they were well fed. Their archaeological record for the workers' village is basically knee-deep piles of animal bones. It's I'm exaggerating, but not by much. Based on animal bone findings, nutritional data, and other discoveries at the workers' town site, archaeologists estimate that more than 4,000 pounds of meat from cattle, sheep, and goats were slaughtered every single day on average to feed the pyramid builders. So this meat-rich diet, along with the availability of medical care, which we know because there are, um, we know that there were accidents, people got hurt, and we have skeletons with evidence of healed traumas. Um, would have been an additional lore for ancient Egyptians to work on the pyramids. So like they found, they found one of those, those little calendars. It's like, there have <laughs> been, and it's like two, like ospreys, two ospreys since our last accident. Two reeds. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been three reeds and a squiggle. Uh, oh. Hieroglyphics jokes. Richard Redding, chief research officer at ancient Egypt research associates, Aira. A group that has been excavating and studying the workers' town site for about 25 years said, quote, people were taken care of and they were well fed when they were down there working. So there would have been an attractiveness to that. They probably got a much better diet than they got in their village, end quote. So let's take a quick break for an ad and then we will come back with another archaeological hit. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We can't very well talk about the archaeology of ancient Egypt without including the one that probably got many of our listeners interested in Egyptology in the first place. Stop me if you've heard this one before. Howard Carter's excavation of the tomb of King Tutankhamun. On November 5th, 1922, Howard Carter wrote in his pocket diary. It's a weird way to say that. It's by Moleskine. Quote, <laughs> discovered <sponsored>. tomb. <laughs> discovered, Although, uh, if you want to, I mean. Moleskine. That would, be a, that would be a valuable. <laughs> it, and very on just, brand for both of us. Just send, a, send us one. It'd be worth it. Quote. Discovered tomb under tomb of Ramses VI. Investigated same. Ampersand found seals intact. <laughs> End quote. That's all he had room for. And it was a pocket diary. Very yeah. small. <laughs> Next pocket diary. Uh, the subsequent excavation of the tomb of Tutankhamun captured the public imagination. 
The complete records of the 10-year excavation were deposited in the Griffith Institute archive shortly after Carter's death by his niece, Miss Phyllis Walker. The Griffith Institute has a fully digitized record of the excavation journals, artifact cards, pictures of artifacts, and details on their conservation, and interactive timelines of the excavation. It's a really great resource, and we will absolutely link to it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Carter's diary notation makes it sound like he's the one who found King Tut's tomb, but the credit really goes to an unnamed young local boy. Yep. He did have a name. No, Yeah. No, he, just not not named by Carter. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure he had it. Yes, I'm whatever his mother called him. That was his name. He 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 was named. And on November fourth, nineteen twenty two, a boy who boy. worked as a water fetcher on the excavation started to dig in the sand with a stick, <laughs> like you do. He found a stone step and called Carter over. Carter was like, out of my way! (laughs) (laughs) Out of my way, I have to discover something. Uh, Carter's crew found a flight of steps that led down to a sealed door and a secret chamber. On November 26th, 1922, Carter and Lord Carnarvon, a wealthy British person. (laughs) That's his claim to fame, wealthy British man. (laughs) Um, And the excavation's backer entered the tomb, where they found an immense collection of gold and treasures. Treasures. On February 16th, 1923, Carter opened the innermost chamber and found the sarcophagus of King Tut. There were 5,398 items found in the tomb, including a salt. That's why it took so many months to get from the point A to point B. Point, because you had to count everything because he's a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> Um, including a solid gold coffin, face mask, thrones, archery bows, trumpets, a lotus chalice, food, wine, sandals, fresh linen underwear, 145 of those for the road. Howard Carter took 10 years to catalog the items. Yeah. One, two. (laughs) Catalog, not count. You got to go one, shiny. (laughs) Two, also shiny. (laughs) Three, rather dull. Four, wood. Recent analysis suggests a dagger recovered from the tomb had an iron blade made from a meteorite. Oh, we talked about that. We have. Yeah. In our metal episode. Yes. <laughs> Study of artifacts of the ta- time. Uh, it go- my cursor was over it. <laughs> I don't What's know- that word say? What's that word say? I don't know what else it could have been. <laughs> artifacts of the tome. <laughs> Could have been tomb. Of the tomb, yeah. Um, including other artifacts from Tutankhamun's tomb. Uh, there it is. Could provide valuable insights into metalworking technologies around the Mediterranean at the time. Yeah. Uh, Tutankhamun is an interesting and sort of tragic figure. He lived his short life during a particularly volatile time in ancient Egypt. The young pharaoh ruled at the end of the 18th dynasty at a time when Egypt had become fabulously rich and powerful. (laughs) The country had prospered for more than a thousand years, keeping traditions that had arisen even before the now famous pyramids at Giza were built. Remember those? those? From two minutes ago? (laughs) By Tutankhamun's time, Egypt had gained access to the legendary gold mines of Nubia to the south and had conquered territory along the Mediterranean coast to the northeast. But Egypt was in turmoil when Tutankhamun took the throne. A pharaoh named Akhenaten... Really leaning into this narrative, huh? I know, yeah. I like it. I'm trying to... 
trying to get into it. I'm trying to get yeah. into it. A pharaoh named Akhenaten, possibly Tutankhamun's father or half-brother, had turned traditions upside down by ordering everyone to worship the sun god Aten, closing the old temples and smashing all of the statues of Amun, a popular god with powerful priests. The heretic pharaoh also moved the country's capital to western to the western desert, far from the life-giving waters of the Nile. He called the place Akhetaten, now the archaeological site of Amarna, and conscripted more than 20,000 people to do the backbreaking work of building an entire city from scratch. Wow, this is So, Tutankhamun inherited sarcasm. <laughs> no, it's just We're all having a great time, Anna. You love ancient Egypt so I much. I sure do. Especially, especially this. Especially, especially Omarna. It's my favorite. Mm. So, Tutankhamun inherited this mess and tried to undo what Akhenaten had done, moving the center of Egyptian power back to the banks of the Nile, where the city of Luxor now stands. Um, he didn't get a chance to do much, though, because he died. Yep. Um, he died suddenly when still a teenager. The cause is uncertain. Perhaps a lethal infection set in after he broke his leg in an accident. Or maybe malaria did him in. Or he had a fatal genetic weakness that arose from the royals' habit of marrying their siblings. Which was a thing they, like, had to do. Yeah. And, because, you know, like, they didn't have any sense of when highly, the possibilities of genetic weirdness. So, ah, uh, uh, No, I mean, they didn't know what genes were. But, I mean, they didn't, yeah, they didn't, like, yeah, they didn't understand, like, gene expression, but... But they did see the results and they should have gone, eh, maybe we don't do that. Most people so in most times have figured out. Yes, that you shouldn't, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't but, uh, but sit it, in the same gene pool too long. It was a, it was, it was a, like an, a, an additional part of consolidation of power. Yeah. That's what it was. Um, fast forward again to November 1922. We're not going to talk about Amarna. Nope. Nope, not talking about not Amarna today. and all that, all that weird art. That weird art they did. People, Why weird are you heads. so mad about the Amarna period? <laughs> just, I had a really bad time at an exhibit. Mm. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> That's like why I didn't like Star Trek for a really long time. Because I had a very severe flu once when I was little. And my dad like thought that a Star Trek movie would cheer me up, I guess. Aww. So I remember like watching, I don't know, some kind of Klingon fight. While I had a high fever, Aww. and just like, yeah, <gasps> I wonder if my lifelong interest in Orientalism uh, stems from the fact that I barfed during the second Aladdin movie. <laughs> no, that's a bad movie. You, you could have barfed for any reason. <laughs> uh, the Return of Jafar, more like Return of My Lunch. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. We're done. End the show. Fast forward. Again, tonight, November 1922 CE, Carter's workmen began clearing a previously neglected triangle of ground in the Valley of the Kings in Luxor. By the end of the month, they had come to a doorway sealed with plaster that had the name of Tutankhamun stamped all over it. <laughs> tut, 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 tut. Carter broke through a small hole through the plaster, held up a candle, and looked in. What he saw would make newspaper headlines around the world. He wrote later, quote, At first, I could see nothing. Terrible headline. Man sees nothing. Oh, wait. <laughs> Something. <laughs> the hot hair escaping 
from the chamber causing the candle to flicker, but presently, as my eyes became accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues, gold. Everywhere the glint of gold. Yep. End quote. Yep. So... Those are some of the big shiny highlights of archaeology. Thank you for that dramatic yeah, thanks. T- tale that you spun for I us. I had a great time. All right. Well, you you keep seething over there, and, <laughs> and I'm going to continue. Uh, those are some of the, the shiny highlights of archaeological discoveries in Egypt. And we've got one more big one to talk about that Amber might actually enjoy. But first... Let's pause briefly for some basics of Egyptian religion, culture, and a timeline of when this was all happening. We can't talk about ancient Egypt without starting with the Nile River. The river emerges from far to the south, deep in Africa, and empties into the Mediterranean Sea in the north after spreading from a single channel into a fan-shaped system, known as a delta, at its northernmost section. Hey, did you know that that's why Delta Airlines is called Delta? Because they were originally like a, a, a crop-spraying service that worked in the Mississippi Delta. I didn't know that. And then the first passenger airlines were like, well, we bolted these folding chairs to the floor. (laughs) You can come along while we drop dust on these crops. Ah, but they got cute uniforms now. Anyway, (laughs) the northernmost section of the Nile is also a Delta. The Nile undergoes cycles, or at least it did before dams were set up, of seasonal floods which deposited rich river silts into the banks and the delta, making this area incredibly fertile. The Egyptians referred to this flood as Kemet, the black lands, and contrasted this dense, dark soil against the Deshret, the red lands of the sterile desert. The line between these zones was, and in most cases still is, a literal line. You can see it. If you go to Google Earth and tootle on over to the Nile Delta, you can see a visual effect of just line between green and not green. And it sort of doesn't look real, but it is. The annual inundation of the Nile was also a reliable and measurable cycle that helped form the concept of the passage of time. In fact, the calendar we use today is derived from one developed by the ancient Egyptians. They divided the year into three seasons, Akhet, or inundation, Peret, growing or emergence, and Shem. Not used to words ending with an M and a W, but Shem or harvest. This cyclical death and rebirth idea shows up a lot in Egyptian religion as well. So we are going to talk a very little bit about Egyptian religion and really only skim the surface because there were more than 2,000 deities in the pantheon. The gods and goddesses were a part of every aspect of life in ancient Egypt, so there were gods and goddesses for just about anything and everything. I've got to cover all your bases. Some of these deities' names are well-known. You may have heard of Isis, Osiris, Horus, Amun, Ra, Hathor, Bastet, Thoth, Anubis, and Ptah. Probably just Ptah. Uh, Many others, less so. The more famous gods became state deities, while others were associated with specific regions or, in some cases, a ritual or a role. The goddess Kebet, for example, is a little-known deity who offered cool water to the souls of the dead as they awaited judgment in the afterlife. Isn't that nice? And and Seshat was the goddess of written words and specific measurements, overshadowed by Thoth, the better-known god of writing and patron of scribes. Goddess of specific measurements, but she was fun to hang out with. 
<laughs> the central value of the Egyptian culture was ma'at, harmony and balance, represented by the goddess of the same name and her white ostrich feather. And it was the god Heka who empowered ma'at just as he did all the other deities. Heka was the manifestation of lowercase h Heka or magic, which isn't necessarily magic in the way that we think of it now, but should be understood to be natural laws, which sort of apply to the natural and the supernatural world. But to the Egyptians, it was just how the world and their universe functioned. There was aspects of supernatural woven into the natural world. So all these gods had, had names, they had individual personalities and characteristics, and they wore different kinds of clothing. They had sacred objects associated with them, and they had their own domains of influence and reacted in highly individual ways to various events. Each deity had their own area of expertise, but were often associated with multiple spheres uh, within human life. The fact that these gods all have their own style of dress and things associated with them, that's called attributes. And it's a thing from ancient Egypt. In fact, anywhere you see um, depiction of gods and deities, they often will have attributes to help signal to the viewer which god you're looking at. And that's something that, that happens in the ancient world all the way through now, even to depictions of, for example, Christian saints who I can't, I meant to look this up. There's one, for example, that uh, a saint was martyred by having his skin flayed from him, which is not a nice way to go. But typically in, in any depictions, he is then um, painted or, or depicted as holding his own skin over his arm, kind of like a trench coat uh, or something. I think you're thinking of Bartholomew. Is it Bartholomew? Yeah, you're right. It's Barth I keep thinking it's Sebastian, but he's the one who was pierced by arrows. But yes. Yeah, he's the right. one that's like got like, Got my skin coat. Drapey. Yeah, drapey. Yeah. yeah. Amber, I know um, this is, you know, so Egyptian gods, for example, Isis is typically pictured with a crown of two horns with a sun disc between those horns. Hathor, speaking of horns, Hathor is often shown with sort of cow-esque horns or even with the face of a cow. Um, so this happens elsewhere in the ancient world, right? So Mesopotamian deities have these attributes as well, right? So how would I know that I was yeah. looking at somebody specific so like you would know you would know that you were looking at um like nana or it's like sin the, the, the moon moon god yeah yeah moon yeah. god yeah um i pay attention so yeah um and so he would have like a crescent there would be a crescent above him so it's not necessarily so you would just see this this like god looking dude and then you'd see a little crescent it's like a little smiley so there'd be that um, shamash. You would you would see like a little star, basically an asterisk. Um, <laughs> and so it's like because they're the the deities that were associated. They were the planetary deities, so they were major members of the pantheon who would be associated with certain celestial bodies. And right. so often you would see that celestial body, mm -hmm. and like you know there. And then they also had like colors associated with them. So oh, that's helpful. And like colored, like colors and metals. So like sin would have like silver as the metal and like greens, the color. Um, Shamash would be like gold and yellow. Makes sense. He's the sun. Yeah. Um, Nurgle. <laughs> <laughs> so Nurgle um, is the god of the underworld. Oh, um, poor I mean, Nurgle. I'm sure in, at the time and in that place, that is a much less funny name. Yeah. Um, well, 
Also, don't laugh at him because he's also associated with forest fires. I wouldn't. Yeah. So Nurgle. Nurgle. Yeah. So you like the next time the smoke rolls in from the forest fires, you can just go out and go, Nurgle! Oh, constantly. Uh, I can't go outside anymore. Yeah, it's his fault. Uh, so he is associated with Mars, but also, curiously enough, iron and the color red. Why wouldn't that? Why is that curious? Because it's Mars. And I know. Like Mars is, is red. Irony. I know. And so is iron when it rusts. That's interesting. Oh, okay. I didn't. I You said curious and I was like, but they well, it's, are it's curious because because it's. Because they didn't have like great, they didn't know that there was like a ton of like oxidized iron on Mars at the time. That's or true. Did they? That's they didn't. True. Um, no, they didn't. They sure didn't. <laughs> but yeah, so you would see because like you think about what what you're doing there, um, there wasn't the same literacy, right? Yeah. So no, this, just... it's a form. It's a form of. It's a. It's a form of of signaling so that people can know like ah this is what's happening here and you don't have to be able to read right in the same way that um often in uh churches you'll see stained glass windows and originally those stained glass windows or carvings along the walls of the church or paintings tell the stories that are in the bible so that you can illustrate them for members of your congregation that do not read yep all right Wrapping up with Egyptian deities, uh, we mentioned Hathor, for example, the cow-headed or cow-horned goddess often. She was a goddess of music, dancing, and drunkenness, but it was also understood as an ancient mother goddess associated with the Milky Way as a divine reflection of the Nile River. And in an earlier incarnation, she was Sekhmet, the destroyer. Mm. So she's had a career. Moving from a quick peek into religion, we're going to go through an equally zippy look at timelines and terms because thank you for for condensing yes yeah yeah i'm here for you okay so the timelines yay look you gotta know like you gotta know when these things are happening i'm i'm fine with this but we also don't have to spend 40 hours on it so here we go egypt's history has traditionally been divided into dynasties, so focused on which family or group at the time was ruling. Uh, there are 30, sometimes 31, depending on how you divide it. There's there's either 30 or 31 of these, so buckle up. So, Here we go. So, number one. <laughs> the idea of breaking the time up into dynasties, this sort of tradition of recording it this way, starts with an Egyptian priest named Manetho, who lived during the 3rd century BCE. Oh, I his, read his work. Yeah, I bet you did. His <laughs> accounts of ancient Egyptian history were preserved by ancient Greek writers. So this is what we had until hieroglyphs were deciphered because Greek continued to be taught and, and read all the way through until Champollion deciphered hieroglyphs. And then we could sort of read the rest of the stuff. So this was one of the very few existing historical accounts from ancient Egypt for a very long time. Dynasties three through six. Because up until the third dynasty, it was kind of a a mix of, it wasn't, so the dynastic period, we're going to start with three, which seems weird, but that's where we're starting. Um, Dynasties three through six date from roughly 2650 to 2150 BCE and are often lumped into a time period called the Old Kingdom. So we just mentioned this time span because this is when the pyramids of Giza were built. 
From 2150 to 2030 BCE, which is a time period that encompasses dynasties 7 through 10 and then a chunk of the 11th dynasty, the central government in Egypt was weak and the country was often controlled by different regional leaders. So this is going to happen multiple times. Egypt goes through periods of really centralized power and then that kind of buckles and you get a lot more regional stuff and then someone consolidates it again, etc., etc. So during this time, other cities and civilizations in the Middle East also experienced similar blips in power structure with evidence at archaeological sites indicating that maybe a period of drought and arid climate hit sites across the Middle East, which is enough to sort of destabilize any sort of Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's when the Akkadian Empire had issues. Choked. Um, And so this is the first intermediate period? I think it corresponds with that. Yes. Okay. The other, so I mentioned that this this chunk has part of the 11th dynasty. The other part extends into the Middle Kingdom, and that also yes. includes the 12th and 13th dynasties. So they pulled it together? Well. So the, one, I mean, like the 11th dynasty, like, re-centralized. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, uh, yes, they aligned their whatevers. Um, and this lasted from 2030 to 1640 BCE. At the start of this dynasty... Or dynasty. A ruler named Mentuhotep II, who reigned until around 2000 BCE, reunited Egypt into a single country. We know quite a bit about this period because Egyptians love to write about themselves, and a bunch of texts survived. Yay! Among these is one of my favorites, the Edwin Smith Surgical Papyrus, which we've mentioned before on the show, and it gives us a sense of what Egyptian medicine and even vet care was like. So that's that, um, the really, I love, I, first of all, I just love how it's lettered because it's got like red and black ink, and it's kind of like, almost like there are hyperlinks in the text, but not really. It's just like words are emphasized in red, but it's a battlefield text for medics. And so it is like, here's how to treat this. Here's how to treat this. Here's how to do this for horses. Um, it's a really cool it document. Was, it was authored by the the common scribal family name. Edwin Smith. Smith. Yeah. Yes. No, he's the guy who owns it because he. Cool. Or owned. I don't know. I think he gave it to the British Museum. Unclear, uh, but he gifted yeah. it to the queen. Yes, and she went thank you. Um, dynasties fourteen through seventeen are often lumped into the second intermediate period by modern day scholars. So again, during this time, central government wobbled in Egypt, with parts of the country being occupied by the Hyksos. So we've mentioned the Hyksos really recently on old news. Turns out their story is way more complicated than they are traditionally depicted. Go figure. So go listen to old news if you want to learn more about the Hyksos. Or go look at the work of Chris Stantis. She's really cool also. Scholars often refer to dynasties 18 through 20 as encompassing the New Kingdom, a period that lasted around from 1550 to 1070 BCE. So this takes place after the Hyksos had been kicked out of Egypt by a series of Egyptian rulers, and the country was again reunited. And it feels so good. Or possibly they just stopped being in charge because they were there all along. Yeah, which is the real story. But, (laughs) you know. (sighs) Perhaps the most famous archaeological site from the New Kingdom is the Valley of the Kings, also mentioned previously, which holds the burial sites of many Egyptian rulers from this time period, including that of Tutankhamun. Dynasties 21 through 24, around 1070 to 713 BCE, are into the triple digits, are often called the (laughs) Third Intermediate Period by modern-day scholars. 
And again, the central government was sometimes weak during this time period, and the country was not always united. During this time, cities and civilizations across the Middle East have been destroyed by a wave of people from the Aegean, whom modern-day scholars, in a very hand-wavy kind of way, sometimes call the Sea Peoples. Who were they? Was it you? We don't know. While Egyptian rulers claimed to have defeated the Sea Peoples in battle, it didn't prevent Egyptian civilization from declining. I mean, Egyptian rulers claimed a lot of stuff. They did. And some of them made like huge monumental art about how they won a battle they super lost. Looking at you, Ramses II. <laughs> Look at how I won this battle. Oh, sir. Yeah. Have that man killed. Okay. Dynasties 25 through 31, around 712 to 332 BCE, are often referred to as the late period by scholars. Oh, late periods. They make you nervous. Okay. <laughs> Gotcha. <laughs> oh, we're going to need a minute, huh? Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> a great time. <laughs> ah, Egypt was sometimes under the control of foreign powers during this period. Ah. The rulers of the 25th dynasty were from Nubia, an area which is now southern Egypt and northern Sudan. The Persians and Assyrians also controlled Egypt at different times during the late period. And then Alexander the Great shows up around 332 BCE and things get even more complicated from there. So let's leave the timeline there, take a quick ad break, and then wrap up with our last archaeological site. This is Chris Webster at the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. Right, let's wrap up this episode like a mummy. Get it? It's Egypt. With a trip across the Nile from Luxor, where we last left King Tutankhamun, to a site on the west bank of the river called Deir el Bahri. The site was traditionally connected with the goddess Hathor. Mm-hmm. Remember her? We talked about her. Mm-hmm. The complex includes three mortuary temples of the Middle and New Kingdom and several royal and non royal tombs. Tombs. Otherwise known as tombs. The main temples include mortuary temples for Mentuhotep, remember him, and Hatshepsut, remember her, and the Temple of Amun. Well, we're going to talk more about her. Well, if you don't, don't worry. And the Temple of Amun (laughs) by Thutmos III. In the mortuary temple of Mentuhotep II, there were six tombs with shrines for royal ladies with finely carved sargophagi with scenes of daily life and the presentation of offerings. I feel like we're getting into it. Like there was 
in this temple, there were six tombs. And in Four each of the tombs, tombs was, yeah. <laughs> Many of Mentuhotep's officials were buried in tombs excavated from the cliffs around his mortuary temple. We're going to focus on Hatshepsut, whose mortuary temple and life story is the main attraction. Let's be real. Yep. So remember when we said that all the pharaohs and all the dynasties were recorded in ancient Egyptian texts? I do. I do remember. Good. So when Europe was gripped by Egyptomania and everybody wanted to come to the Nile and find themselves a pharaoh, scholars started to notice that some of the pharaohs and the ancient texts were missing. Their tombs weren't present in known burial areas. Searching for these lost pharaohs became quite the quest. Archaeological investigations of the Deir al-Bahri complex were begun in 1881 after objects belonging to the missing pharaohs began to turn up in the antiquities market. Gaston Maspero, director of the Egyptian Antiquity Service at the time, went to Luxor in 1881 and began to apply pressure to the Abdul el-Rasul family, locals who had for generations been known tomb robbers. They must have eventually caved because excavations at the temple by the Egyptian Exploration Fund... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> began in the 1890s, led by French archaeologist Edouard Navier. In 1911, Navier turned Way. over his concession on Deir al-Bahri, which allowed him sole excavator's rights, to Herbert Winlock. What a name. Who began what would be 25 years of excavation and restoration. Hatshepsut's tomb is fronted by a massive colonnaded set of terraces. Put an extra syllable in there. Terraces. Of terraces. terraces. These terraces are connected by long ramps, which were once surrounded by gardens. I was racking my brain trying to remember what the name of this game was called. But when I was in middle school, I think I had... Maybe it was one of those like discovery book... Oh, uh, like the the Dorling Kindersley books? Yeah, yeah, yeah. DK. Oh, yeah. That is what it was. (laughs) Discovery. No, I just I remember the DK part, but I had a, a, a video game set in ancient Egypt and you could like, but it was ancient Egypt. You were walking through as it once was or, you know, reconstructed and you could go to Hatshepsut's temple and there were these holes outside the like little little pits outside the terraces. And I remembered this fact that these had once um, held frankincense trees and so as I was doing this research, I was like, oh, yeah, that game. Aw. It's a real nice memory for me. Aw. See, look, we both have tangentially related to Egypt memories of our childhood. I didn't barf, though. I was talking about my scarab. Oh, equally did unpleasant. You, did you black out again? <laughs> um, I would say the scarab was actually much more unpleasant. Yeah, I bet. Anyway. The relief sculpture within Hatshepsut's temple recites the the tale of the divine birth of the pharaoh. The text and pictorial cycle also tell of an expedition to the land of Punt, an exotic country on the Red Sea coast. Yeah, also I found a a source called Lessons in Tree Care from Ancient Egypt, which is very charming. Uh So it's like a blog. Yeah. Quote, when her fleet of five ships returned after the two-year voyage, they brought back five shiploads of various goods. Yet the most prize of all their cargo was 31 live frankincense trees. The trees had been carefully excavated and their roots bound in balls of their indigenous soil for the duration of the long voyage. Upon arrival, Hatshepsut 
had the trees planted in the courts of of her Dar al-Bahri mortuary temple. When these exotic trees were planted, it would become the first known transplanting and establishment of foreign trees, end quote, which like is a lovely anecdote, but also like reminds one that she was alive during the creation of her mortuary complex, which is... Most pharaohs were. I know, I know, which is just like, it's a real mood. Well, you know, honestly, I don't know if it would be because... To the ancient Egyptians, ostensibly, the afterlife was just a continuation of no. I'm saying living. That's a and that is a mood. It is yes. It is a mood. On the Punt Bar relief, you can see the trees being transported. Yeah. So here's a little bit more from lessons in tree care from ancient Egypt. Quote. By using root protection and handling the trees by the root ball, using straps rather than the branches or the trunk, the picture shows that they applied current best practice in tree establishment. (laughs) Discovered at the temple complex were the intact roots of frankincense trees. A preserved tree root displayed in, I'm assuming, Anna's... editorial comment in like a weird tree cage (laughs) it is it's got like the tiniest little fence around it so it's like (laughs) a bird cage over this tree root in in front of the temple is claimed to have been the same tree brought from punt by hatshepsut's expedition which is depicted on the temple walls yep end quote i didn't know about this all the, this, like all this stuff that I know about Punt and like and like its its location of being like somewhere along the Red Sea or something, like you didn't know about this. I didn't know about this. Which it's like, actually it's a big deal because that this this is this is big. <laughs> well, it's it's not just that; it's that Punt was a huge exporter of frankincense. So this essentially yeah. was corporate espionage on Hatshepsut's oh, part. This is a be- real. By like bringing Slughorn. Yeah, I guess. Willy Wonka at the Chocolate Factory? It's a Slughorn? He's the corporate espionage guy? Oh, I'm thinking of Harry Potter. Anna. Is that Slugworth? There's a slug guy. Whatever. Yes, Slughorn is the guy who steals his secrets. Yes. I, why would I talk about Harry Potter? I know you wouldn't, which is why I was confused. But <laughs> Punt was this huge frankincense exporter and i remember reading that they weren't too keen to give hutchepsut frankincense trees because they didn't want egypt kind of horning in on their, yeah. on their market but um i don't think i think actually the frankincense trees didn't end up doing so because you know they, uh, they didn't were, become the, a primary I mean, they producer have a, of frankincense they have a very um they're delicate plant. they're very delicate yeah there's like a very um specific like climate niche that they can they can live right in. and Dar al-Bahri was not it no on either side of the entrance to the sanctuary are painted pillars with images of Hathor as the capitals the tops tops of the pillars yeah just under the roof is an image of Wajit flanked by two other long serpents the temple includes an image of Hatshepsut depicted as a male pharaoh giving offerings to Horus. And to their left, there's an animal skin wound around a tall staff that is a symbol of the god Osiris. Now, while the statues and ornamentation have since been stolen or destroyed, the temple Bummer. once was home to two statues of Osiris, a long avenue lined by sphinxes, as well as many sculptures of pharaoh Hatshepsut in different attitudes. Angry. No. Sleepy. That's not what attitudes mean? Sexy. Here. Sneezy. Standing, duck. S- standing, sitting, or kneeling. 
Hatshepsut came to the throne in Egypt in 1478 BCE. Her rise to power was noteworthy as it required her to utilize her bloodline, education, and an understanding of religion. Her bloodline was impeccable as she was the daughter, sister, and wife of a king. Not the same king all at once, but with ancient Egypt, sometimes that's the case. Again, consolidation of power. The earliest attestation of Hatshepsut as pharaoh occurs in the tomb of Ramos and Hatnofer, where a collection of grave goods contained a single pottery jar or amphora from the tomb's chamber, which was stamped with the date year seven. Another jar from the same tomb was stamped with the seal of the god's wife, Hatshepsut. The dating of the amphora is undisputed, which means that Hatshepsut was acknowledged as king and not queen of Egypt in year seven of her reign. I, oh man, I remember I got, so I learned about- Is this going to be about that argument? Yes! (laughs) I'm still mad about that. Yeah, I know. Ah, it just, it's not, it's not that hard. Amber had an argument about king versus queen versus pharaoh. Hatshepsut was king and pharaoh. Hatshepsut was king and pharaoh. The end. And that's it. That's not hard. That's That's not hard. It's not. I'm agreeing with you. Oh, man. Hatshepsut was a prolific builder. Well, commissioner. <laughs> She's yeah. so a boss. No, um, not like the commish. No. But like she commissioned things to be no, built. No, it's just like she was, yeah. She, was, she placed an area block on top of another. No. Ordering hundreds of temples and other structures built all over her territory and sticking obelisks all over the place. That's an, that's an, exaggeration on my part she built like two obelisks but too too many in my view (laughs) there are lots of portraits of her all as pharaoh wearing the traditional headdress (laughs) and even the beard she was pharaoh in every sense which is cool i'm letting it go Mm -hmm. i mean it's cool but she was pharaoh she's awesome yeah after Hatshepsut's death, much of what she had built was defaced or destroyed by her successor, so a lot of her inscriptions are gone, and a lot of her statues were smashed, but enough remains to show that she was a powerful and successful ruler. She was not a queen. So, like, Hatshepsut was a woman. Yes. But Pharaoh is a masculine role. It's also just a job title. Like, it in this a, case, king yeah. is her job. Yeah. It's not a description that is necessarily accords with her gender has nothing to do about how she identified herself but it is how she performed that role yeah as a series of masculine attributes so it's it's not like how britain sometimes has a king sometimes has a queen right in charge yeah she wasn't a queen she was like wife of a king or god well her title was wife of a god but she was like wife of a king but she was kinging pharaoh yes yeah so, my goodness, that was quite the journey. We we stand a king. We do stand a king. <laughs> That's it for this week. We will come back to ancient Egypt again, since there's so much more to talk about. But not today. Thanks not today. for listening. Keep leaving us stars and reviews on the Apple Podcast app. It's a huge help for us. And we're going to start reading one or two of your five-star reviews at the top of the show. As a thank you. And yeah. to make ourselves feel nice. Yeah, I want to uh, feel nice. We'll be back in your ear soon with more content, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you like to listen. And we're also on social media. On Facebook, you can find us at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. 
And if you go over to our website, thedirtpod.com, you can find all of that, merch, sponsored episodes, and more than that. Even more I mean, than that. You can, That's a lot. And then it's there's a lot. More. It's all of our back episodes. You could listen to us for literal days. There's more than 100 hours up there. My God. But we couldn't have gotten that far without you all. So thank you. We love you. Bye. Goodbye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.